Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Daniel, chapter 3, verses 12 through 23, which is located in your bulletin and in our church Bibles on page 739. Please stand, if you are able, as we read from the Old Testament. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Please be seated. Let's pray as we come to our study in the book of Daniel. Lord, to whom else should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Lord, we need you. We need your word. We need you to speak to us. We need you to be our life and our reality, Jesus. We praise you that you are the constant North Pole star for us, whose promises are ever sure and whose truth pierces all darkness. Lord, may it be so for our hearts as we respond to your word. In Christ's name, amen. In this uh, trial of an election, I thought I would um, get away from it all by reading a biography or two, uh, political biographies. I've... uh, Love several. Ones I would recommend to you particularly are on Teddy Roosevelt. You know, um, in the middle, he's 
probably quite unique in this. In the middle of one of the elections, uh, not liking the direction of his own party, he formed an entirely new political party, the Progressives Party. And uh, people were so angry that someone shot him during a rally in, uh, while he was speaking at a, a rally in Wisconsin. I guess it's when you know the campaign isn't going too well. But the man was remarkable. He just took the bullet and finished the speech. The bull moose, they called him. And I was thinking about just the unusual characters that uh, political life has produced. There was a story about Churchill when he was younger who got into a political argument with a um, grand lady at a dinner who, thinking to shut him up, snapped at him, young man, I care neither for your politics nor your moustache, to which he responded, you are unlikely, madam, to come into contact with either. <laughs> but it is remarkable, isn't it? The, the personalities, the egos. Think of the Roosevelts. Think of Hamilton and Jackson and Lincoln and Jefferson and Truman. All of these personalities, that glorious list, these larger-than-life characters that we've had in American political life, the people whose egos have essentially shaped our political history. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, when you come then to this episode in the book of Daniel, because it shows you, I suppose, that some things don't change. I love the poet Steve Turner, who said, history repeats itself, has to, no one ever listens so we saw last week how a similar ego had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Daniel, remember, had but one word for comfort for him after he had uh, deciphered the king's dream. You, he told him, are the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar, we are told, worshipped Daniel's God. But reading here, chapter 3, we have reason to believe it was his own gilded kingship that he kept in mind. So this story, which most of us parents know because we have watched VeggieTales, begins with the building of this huge statue on the plain of Dura. They think they know exactly where it was. Made entirely of gold to the praise of the might of Nebuchadnezzar the Great. And I take this to be the key verse around which this chapter turns. Verse 14, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands. Who is the God? And that, I think, is the question of this book. It's the question of our lives. It's the question that faces us in our decisions and in our crises. In the face of the ways in which the world threatens to squeeze us into its shape, this chapter gives us assurance about the God of heaven. So for the sake of brevity this morning, I'm going to pick just two from this long chapter, chapter three. If you would have it open before you, you can find it in the Bibles there, in the seats in front of you, or I am reliably told on your phone. So two assurances from Daniel chapter three. First, if you'll look at these first 15 verses, notice this first assurance that it is God who brings his people to the test. It is God who tests us. You know, when archaeologists excavated Babylon in 1930, they found the largest city of the entire Iron Age. 
Indeed, it seemed massive to ancient imaginations. The Greek historian Herodotus said that Babylon's walls were 56 miles long and 320 feet high. That would have been 30 feet taller than the US Capitol. But they were probably 12 miles long and maybe 100 foot high. But the city for its day was still massive. It had a population the size of the city of Richmond. And at the northern gate, the Ishtar gate, they found these ruins. And enough bricks which were glazed in lapis, whichever you've seen it, it's this bluest blue precious stone. And the sides of the gate were decorated with golden images of dragons and bulls. And you can see the actual remains of the gate next time you're in Berlin at the Pergamon Museum. And on the gate, they found this 45-foot-high inscription written by Nebuchadnezzar himself, which began with these words, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, glorious prince, worshipper of Marduk, glorifier of Nabu, firm not to be destroyed, lord of peace, king of Babylon am I. This ego, this man who believed that he himself was the glory of Babylon. And if you and I were there, I doubt that we would have doubted it. The magnificence of what he built, the city's canals, its hanging gardens, its huge processional avenues, meant that by the standards of any contemporary, Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest. And the other thing, when you read this inscription, You hear these constant references to bricks and to bitumen and to cement and gold. It should convince us that the 90-foot statue and these great furnaces necessary for making the bricks or refining the gold would not have presented any difficulty for this king who was no more for his buildings than he was for his battles. So we come to Daniel chapter 3. And the problem for Nebuchadnezzar, of course was not his present greatness. The problem for him was keeping that greatness. So if you go to Berlin, you can see this. In the very last stanza of the inscription on the Ishtar Gate, it's written in, written in his words, from the west to the east by the rising sun, may I have no enemies. And then these telling words, may they not be multiplied within, within the midst of my house. So... Like so many dictators after him, Nebuchadnezzar in his paranoia appears to have built this statue as a means of controlling the ranks of his own provincial government. It was likely a statue of himself. And at the head of that government, if you remember after chapter 2, were Daniel's three friends here in the province of Babylon who were overseeing it. So this loyalty test having been established These young men, probably not even 20 years old, have to decide what they will do. And I want you to see this because I think this is so instructive. This is the way that so often the Bible tells us how to cope with these situations that we face in our ways. The way they responded is instructive for us who are called to be ourselves faithful exiles in the modern world. So notice how they responded. Again, not even 20 years old, probably. They picked their battles. 
Notice they didn't oppose Nebuchadnezzar on everything. They showed a certain prudence and wisdom. They served the king, but this was the line they drew. They would not be disloyal to the God of gods. And next, you'll notice they responded in measured and personal ways. Maybe it was that they hoped that people wouldn't notice that they weren't there when this political game of musical chairs began. But I don't think theirs was open defiance. There were no protests in the streets. They were rather quietly praying, my guess is, at home. This was a private exercise of conscience. And third, notice they showed generosity to their political rivals, even in the face of enemies wanting to kill them. You remember Daniel's appeal that the king stop the slaughter of the astrologers. But when their resistance was exposed, it was exposed by these people who fear them. It's an important thing to remember, isn't it? After an election like this one, in a church like ours, which is made up of Democrats and Republicans, that we need to be tender and generous with each other in the face of such an event. They had showed generosity. And then notice they were prepared. They were prepared for this kind of outcome. They refuse, you'll notice, to provide any kind of defense for themselves. It's remarkable bravery. You know, if any of you who are younger who would say to yourself, well, I'm not even 20, don't expect much from me. These young men had already decided how they would be brave in the face of such a king. So verse 16, in this matter we have no need literally to return a word to you. Remarkable courage. This man who could wipe them out without another breath. They tell him, we're not going to explain ourselves. We're not going to pretend to you that this is something you'll understand or that we can persuade you about. This is a line we will not cross. This is our non-negotiable. Verse 12, we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image that you've set up. You know, politics and political involvement has never been easy for the church. We tend to be as slow as molasses to react to real moral emergencies and slow to take the radical steps for Christ that we need to. For example, the history of the evangelical church in the 1930s in Germany makes for sobering reading. And we should read it. The church, after all, was deceived because it had been squeezed into the mold of an anti-Semitic Europe that welcomed Hitler. In fact, it took the Nazis hijacking the national church, threatening the authority of scripture, and reinterpreting the Reformation as a support for Nazi doctrine, for finally Protestants like Martin Niemöller and Hans Ehrenberg and Frederick Wiesler, and Catholics like Dietrich von Hildebrandt, to publicly oppose Hitler to his face. And when they do so, this is so much like Nebuchadnezzar, he initially backed down, assuring them that he would not issue any anti-church laws or bring any pogroms against the Jews. But as they continued to speak out, he closed their churches. As they continued to stay in Christ's camp, he destroyed their homes. And when they said they would not bow the knee, he imprisoned them. In the case of many of them, he executed them. Because like Daniel's friends, they gave their bodies as living sacrifices. We are surrounded by a cloud of witnesses who have lived this kind of life before us. 
So this is the test, isn't it? It might one day be for us a national test, but it begins, I think, with a local personal test. We must ask ourselves, who am I? Who am I by my actions, by my words, or by my silence, or by my inaction, declaring to the world that Jesus is and what Jesus values? In these days, in this week perhaps, when Christ is being judged again, as the world looks at the church, what will we say? What will you do? If you and I have been given this life to witness to Christ, how will we show him? Now, I was reading that Churchill at the unveiling of a memorial to Lawrence of Arabia in 1936 said this about his character, and I find this so striking because in many ways it describes these three men and it describes the way I think that we're called to be. He said, The world looks with some awe upon a man who appears unconcernedly indifferent to home, money, comfort, rank, or even power and fame. The world feels that here is someone outside its jurisdiction, someone strangely untamed, untrammeled by convention, moving independent of the ordinary currents of human action. And Winston was profoundly affected by that. People like these three young men who had been brought to the test because the world had nothing on them. So I think this is the question that Daniel will continually face us with. Does the world have a grip on you? Because the test will inevitably come like this. As it did for the Christians under the Romans, you remember, but a little whiff of incense thrown in a censer and a word or two mumbled about Caesar being Lord, and they would be done. Can you imagine how much easier it would have been for them to perform that simple civic ceremony than the other choice, which was to be taken immediately, them and their families, to their deaths in the circuses? One of the things that Daniel shows us is that God won't keep these times of testing from us. He looks for evidence that our faith is real. And what makes it real is not whether you or I say we believe this or that, but whether out there you and I will go against the flow and stand up for Christ. You know, when someone is riding down Christians in the office and maybe because of some of the Christians they've known they've got some reason to but will you admit actually I'm a Christian too and maybe they will say back yes but you're not one of those Christians right and you will say perhaps well maybe not exactly like them but yes one of those Or when someone's gossiping at work about a disliked co-worker, what will you do when Jesus tells you to take the side of the oppressed and the downcast and the lowly? For his sake, Paul said, I have suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ. To lose everything, or even to lose this particular thing, is that what you and I have signed up for? Well, it may come to that. Is Jesus Christ your value? Because your loyalty is going to be tested. It's God who brings people to the test. Secondly, notice it is God who saves his people by one means or another. 
Notice that having been put to the test, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego rise to the challenge in verse 17. They say this to Nebuchadnezzar. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. I find two things helpful in a crisis for me. The first is singing scripture songs to myself, which with my singing may create crises for others. But the second is reading from children's translations of the Bible. I don't know if you've ever done this. There's something peculiarly comforting in it. I was reading Sally Lloyd-Jones's book, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing, which we often give to families when their children are baptized here. This is the bit that resonated with me. It's called Don't Be Afraid. Whenever God talks to his children, do you know what he usually says first? He says, do not be afraid. God must not want his children, even for a moment, living anxiously or afraid. He wants his children to trust him. Are you worried about something today? Is something frightening you? God says to you, don't be afraid. I am with you. I will help you. Whatever it is, you can put it in God's hands. Isn't that tremendous? I was thinking about these three teenagers who, for the sake of putting God first, had put themselves in extreme jeopardy. How could they do that? I'm throwing a lot of history at you this morning, but again, it's important, I think, that we know these things. This is our heritage. There's the old story of Bishop Polycarp, who at the age of 86 was dragged before the Roman proconsul in Ephesus in AD 156 for preaching Christ. And he was ordered to publicly renounce Jesus before the crowds. And he replied, we are taught to give all due honor to the powers and authorities which are ordained of God. But as for these, he said, motioning to the proconsul, I do not deem them worthy of receiving any account from me. Which was pretty rude. <laughs> and doubtless made the crowd roar with laughter. Then the frustrated proconsul threatened him that he would burn him alive with fire. And Polycarp told him, you threaten me with your little fire, but you have no idea of the size and fury of the fire that's awaiting you if you don't repent. And the, the chronicler says that while the proconsul of Rome was furious and ordered him to be buried, burned alive, Polycarp himself was, quote, filled with an uncommon confidence and joy. We have no doubt that Nebuchadnezzar had the capacity to do what he threatened to do. Archaeologists have found records of a practice among Babylonians of converting the kilns that made the bricks or refined their gold into instruments of execution. You can still find them or ones like them in the Middle East. Here's a picture of one in modern Pakistan from two years ago. I show you this one because a Christian couple were thrown into it and burned alive two years ago for holding firmly to their faith in Jesus. So these three friends were also bound and thrown into the furnace. And the text tells us Nebuchadnezzar, who's been watching the proceedings, verse 24, gets out of his seat in astonishment. And do you notice here what's caught his attention? It's not actually that the three men were evidently still alive. That presumably is what would interest most people. No, what interests him is that there is a fourth person with them. 
I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. There's no evidence that anyone else saw it but Nebuchadnezzar did. He saw the fourth man and that man looked to him to be divine. Do you see that? The appearance of God, I suspect the appearance of God's son was meant for him to see. Why? Not because Shadrach, Meshach or Abednego were ever in any danger in the purposes of God. But because in the words of Psalm 68, our God is a God who saves. The king was meant to see the men survive the fire because the son of the gods was with them. Many of us, I think, were moved by George Verwa's comments on Thursday night about suffering. As George suggested, people who have easy answers to suffering are not to be trusted. And these men in the story readily conceive that God might not save them from the fire, but theirs is an unquenchable confidence that theirs is a God who might, by one means or another, save his people. Why are they suffering? Well, a possible reason is that others might see that here is a God who has saved them. Why are you suffering? I don't know. But I do know that if you are open about it, whatever it is that you are going through, whatever trials, large or small, are afflicting you, wherever it is in your doubts, perhaps even with the Christian faith, If you have friends that are not yet followers of Jesus, and what a loss if we don't, I think the encouragement is, just like this fiery furnace, open to the public, is that we should let them see the pain, even as we want to share and support them in theirs. I think they should see you praying. They should see you relying on the mercy of God, the God who saves It's useless to be all fake about it and just to say, I'm fine. It's far more powerful and far more honest to say how you're really doing and then subscribe the salvation to the God who saves. And it's then they will see, as God works, something of what and something of who Nebuchadnezzar saw that day. Because God is all about showing his glory so that people might be saved. So my friends, if we are in Christ, this is the promise in Jude. You are called by God the Father who, quote, loves you and keeps you safe in the care of Jesus Christ. And how does he do that? Except that because Jesus was loyal to his Father before his own desires, for your sake he went through the fiery trial that you might be entirely safe. So Christians are to respond to this world and to respond to this world's crises and the crises of their own lives with a confidence that doesn't rely on what happens here. The question in the end is not yours and my safety. We are safe enough in Jesus, come what may. But the question really is the safety, the saving of those around us. Will you let your friends who don't yet know the loving kindness of the Lord, will you let them see the sufficiency of Jesus in your life? Will you let them in? Will you be honest with them? 
Will you share with them the stories of your life? Will you listen to them as they speak of their struggles? Will you offer to pray with them? And will you then show them the promises which are not just for us, but for them, from the master who loves them too? Will you share your life? Will you share your struggles? Will you share your sins? Will you share your soul hope with them? Why has this fiery trial come upon you? Perhaps it might be that Christ will be made known to your friends and your family through this, through you. So these, I think, are two of the assurances of Daniel to us. It is God who brings his people to the test. It is God who saves those who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, it's appropriate for us to call upon the name of Jesus. Because when you were choosing a name for yourself, Lord, that name means the one who saves, God who saves, the God who saves. The God who can save any of us and will save any of us as we place our hope in him. And so this morning, Father, for ourselves, for our friends and neighbours, for the people that we can think about right now in the middle of some crisis, or for our nation as it goes forward, for our president-elect and for those who will be around him, for the Congress, for those who will lead in various ways in these next years, Lord, might they see the Jesus who saves And might they cling to him by your grace. In Christ's name, amen.